Hey all, this is Steven with the Parks Academy. Uh, before we start the show, I just need to make a quick and somewhat embarrassing admission of a mistake that I made. Um, about 11 minutes, 11 and a half minutes into the show, I said that Kevin Rafferty, an Imagineer, um, had passed away in 2020. Um, I got half of that information right. Uh, however, the Kevin Rafferty, who I thought uh, I was talking about, uh, it was actually an American documentary film cinematographer, director, and producer um, who was known for his 1982 documentary, The Atomic Cafe. He actually passed away on July 2nd, 2020. However, the Imagineer, Kevin Rafferty, actually uh, retired uh, just a couple of years ago after 42 years with Disney, and he is very much alive and well. So, so Kevin, if, if you are listening by any chance, I apologize for that mistake, and uh, I just wanted to make sure that I uh, got that out there before you listened to the show and maybe heard incorrect information. Anyways, thanks so much for listening, and uh, enjoy this episode. Everyone, this is the Parks Academy, where we discuss and celebrate all things theme parks related. We focus mainly on Disney parks and resorts in both Anaheim and Orlando. My name is Paige. My name is Steven. And today we will be continuing our Park Icons miniseries. Yes, we will. This is, this one is really fun. I, one of the, one of the things that I am discovering about this miniseries is I look at each attraction or each sort of marquee thing and I just say this is not going to work there's not that much information about it and then I'm just pleasantly surprised <laughs> well this one has a ton of information yeah last time when we did Grizzly Peak I kind of you went into it sort of blind because I put it all together I came up with the ideas and stuff and then I just basically rattled stuff off to you but we did a little bit of like dual research together so I think that that that's kind of fun because now you, you got a little more info. Sure. Well, in this one, prior to the research we did, we've also learned a little bit of background about this one. So I kind of yeah. already had some knowledge going into this one. That is right. So what, um, what's got you feeling excited? What's going on with you this week? Our baseball teams are playing each other. <laughs> Sports every week. Yeah. They are. The Giants and the Orioles are playing each other. Today, uh, Sunday, when we're recording, on the 4th, it's the rubber match. So we'll see who wins. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It's been fun to watch. The games have been crazy lakes. We're on the East Coast, so they start for us past 10 p.m. Right. And so I've been up till 1 in the morning watching them. Right. Which Today is, not... is an afternoon game, mm -hmm. so that'll be better. It's not unusual for me to stay up past 1 o'clock to watch a game. Um, especially because I'm a Bay Area sports fan, but it's always a little cumbersome to, you know, pull myself up to bed at like 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, that's what I'm excited about this week because prior to this season, it is like an every four years thing. Mm -hmm. And now that we have the balanced schedule, yeah, we can look forward to playing each other each yep. year. Yeah, the MLB made a bunch of changes this year. And one of those big ones was that every team basically plays each other twice a year. Somewhat, you know, so it's a lot less interleague play and more like you, you play, play every team, everybody essentially. once. Some of them you play twice, depending right. on, you know, where they are. But sure. 
Yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a welcome change along with other things. So that is something for sure to be excited about. Um, I am excited because on Friday morning, I took the day off of work and I drove up to Hershey Park and I rode Wildcat's Revenge, their brand new hybrid steel roller coaster. It was good. What were your thoughts? Um, my thoughts were that the roller coaster was great. I So basically, Wildcat was an old wooden coaster in Hershey Park that was famously rickety and rough to ride. And See, while it was only fun... only roller coaster in my life that has ever given me whiplash. Yeah, while it was fun, it was very difficult to ride. I rode it last year at some point by myself, and um, it was very, very rough on my back. This one, basically what they did was they took all of the bones of the wooden coaster and left them, like left them as is. And then they took the a new steel coaster and built it on top of it, basically. So it looks crazy. Um, it's a lot of fun. It has some inversions. It has like the world's longest and maybe first double inversion on a uh, roller coaster. It's really, really good. Um, it kind of acts like a wooden coaster when you're going up the hill, like you hear the cre- uh, like the creaking and the uh, clicking and then it feels like at some point it's going up and then it goes back a little bit and up and back a little bit so it, it really kind of plays with your head um, as you're going as you're going on the ride it oh, was very fun though i'm looking forward to being able to ride it you would like it a lot it's yeah. really good the yeah, only complaint that i would have is that i was really severely disappointed with the um guest at hershey park because you know a disney there's really no running allowed in the parks. Usually you get reprimanded by a cast member if you're running. Sure. And they let, I got in an hour early because we're season pass holders. Um, and uh, I, I got in, I went, you know, through the park and there was an area where it was roped off with like these metal, with like these metal sort of gate system. And uh, as soon as the gates opened up, people full on sprinted. I mean, I saw a couple people get knocked over. There was hoodlums in the garden beds trying to like get around everyone and run over them and stuff. It was because there was like a walkway with garden beds on each side and there was people like climbing up into the garden beds trying to get over. Um, It was a mess and people are totally impatient. It's crazy. Yeah, I have a feeling that that happens when Pretty much most theme parks have like an opening day situation. No, I'm sure. I was just really surprised at how chaotic it was. And then I'm not really a runner and I was not going to run, but I was, because I got there so early, I was like right in the front part of the line. I mean, I I could, I was like right in the front. And as soon as they opened, people took off and I had like almost 150 people pass me in like five seconds. And so I thought, well, I probably should run. So I ran a little bit and then it was just, not great but good ride uh fun experience i'm glad i got to go on it definitely a uh, a very very good coaster awesome for sure that's great uh before we get started i just wanted to quickly say um just as a little bit of front matter here um of course we're sponsored by deep cut uh you'll hear more about them later in the show and we are linking to them in the show notes but uh, they're awesome they make accessories and record displays uh, for your music. And uh, we really, really love these guys. Happy to have them sponsor us. And uh, also, we just wanted to kind of get out of the way first really quick that uh, we would really appreciate it if you guys would uh, hit us with a nice review and maybe a rating on Apple Podcast. 
uh, definitely helps with some of the discoverability and credibility of the show. And uh, we would just really appreciate any kind words you guys could uh, could give us. And of course, we'll read them on the show, share it with you guys. But um, yeah, those are pretty much the only front things I wanted to pull out. Do you have anything that you wanted to mention otherwise before we jump right into Tower of Terror? I do not. That pretty much covers it. Okay. Well then, let's do it. Tonight's episode is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. We are talking about the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Specifically for this Parks Icon series, we are going to be talking about the conveniently the very first Tower of Terror, which uh, is in Hollywood Studios. So, uh, first things and first thoughts about the Tower of Terror before we get into the enormous amount of information that there is surrounding it. Um, the the uh, Tower of Terror is uh, was officially opened up at Disney's Hollywood Studios, or at the time MGM Studios, on July 22nd, 1994. It is a drop ride, and it is mixed with a lot of theatrical elements to it. That's basically for people who don't really know what it is, but I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you have a pretty good idea of what Tower of Terror is. Yes, and this is actually one of the only attractions. Is it the only attraction I've never written in Walt Disney World? It, um, I think it might be. This I mean, may... besides ones like some maybe kiddie rides that you've never been on before. But I've in Walt Disney World, I've been on most of the kids' rides. Mm-hmm. So unless it came out in the last two years. Yeah. But even so, I think this We've is the only on attraction I have never ridden. Yeah. Um, the only one that I was going to say you haven't been on in, in Walt Disney World is like, uh, um, you know, the one I'm thinking of is like Rise of the Resistance. But you've been on that one at Disneyland or the same thing. So that's right. sort of doesn't Correct. count. So this beautiful ride. It uh, it was designed and inspired by a bunch of different Southern California landmarks, including the Biltmore Hotel and the Mission Inn. It's agricultural. Um, it's architectural, agricultural style. It's architectural style is uh, referred to as something called Pueblo Deco, which is a combination of the Pueblo Revival and the Art Deco style. This tower is 199 feet tall and 11 inches. And uh, it is actually the tallest attraction at Walt Disney World Resort. And it was specifically designed to be just under 200 feet to avoid having to put a red aircraft warning light on top of it, which, um, according to Imagineers, would completely detract from that 1930s aesthetic that they were going for. Mm -hmm. Do you know, just for fun, uh, well, actually, we'll get to that later. I was going to ask about other tall icons but we're going to get to those ones in other okay. episodes sounds good i almost put the cart before the horse there you go so this ride is what's interesting about this ride is disney was really trying to get in on at the time figuring out like what they wanted to do with a drop ride attraction there was a lot of different ideas going around and um you know as they were trying to put 
all of these sort of rough concepts together. Originally, we'll, we'll talk about this one in just a second, but there was like a geyser ride that was floated around um, where you would be basically be on top of a geyser and it would shoot you up in the sky, kind of similar to the ride mechanics, but a different storyline. Okay. And so they ended up kind of having all of these different uh, ideas of like, what do we need to put at the end of Sunset Boulevard? So to back it up a little bit, during this period of time, um, Kevin Rafferty, who's an Imagineer, a brilliant Imagineer, mind you, he has a book called Magic Journey, My Fantastical Walt Disney Imagineering Career. This came out in 2019. Um, and uh, sadly, I th- believe he died in 2020. But uh, Kevin Rafferty is, is a Imagineering genius and one that I don't think really gets enough credit. He, uh, he actually, I'm going to read you off some of his resume. Okay. It's going to take a minute, okay? Mm-hmm. He is responsible for Typhoon Lagoon, um, the old comedy warehouse at Pleasure Island. He, and, um, he was responsible for the Star Tour show. He did the Tower of Terror. He did the 1994 remix of Carousel of Progress. It's tough to be a bug. The Enchanted Tiki Room under new management. He wrote the music for Sunny Eclipse show. He did Blizzard Beach, Test Track, Rock and Roller Coaster, uh, Mickey's Philhar Magic, Finding Nemo's Submarine Voyage, Toy Story Midway Mania. He was involved with Cars Land. And his final project he was involved with was Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Wow. So this guy has a deep, deep resume on him. Yes, absolutely. He was one of the ones who was brought in to try to figure out this new ride mechanic that Michael Eisner and the rest of the team wanted, which was going to be a drop attraction. At the time, he was working on Roger Rabbit's Hollywood, uh, which was going to be placed at the very far end of Sunset Boulevard, where Rock and Roller Coaster is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times sort of described this as a kind of toontown where you're in a movie and only... Uh, only cartoon characters live. Um, a couple of the land, like key rides they were going to have in Roger Rabbit's Hollywood were uh, the Toontown Transit and Baby Herman's Runaway Buggy Ride mm-hmm. with like babies smoking cigars. And Oh, that sounds uh, really Disney-like. Well, you know Baby Herman. Right. So that project fell through, obviously. Mm-hmm. It was one that that just completely fell apart. And at the same time, he was working on uh the the ride Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. Have you heard of this? No, I all? haven't. So this ride was um it would have utilized the same kind of enchanted uh or excuse me, enhanced uh motion vehicle technology that we find in Indiana Jones and Dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And at the time it was going to basically be in like an industrial warehouse as part of the 1920 Chicago era and it was going to be built around um uh it was going to be built around this new area in hollywood studios proposed as hollywood land which was kind of going to be like this old style of you know like dick tracy in 1920s hollywood and all that sure um but the the film the dick tracy film that was kind of going to help propel this ride come to be uh, it, it performed horribly in the box office. Mm. So because it was so bad in the box office and no one cared about it, it was ultimately scrapped. Um, and what I can't imagine it would have had long legs to it either because um, part of it was that you were going to be riding around in cars with little guns and like shooting at 
bad guys. Yeah. And I just can't see how, I mean, that's Dick Tracy, but like, I just don't see how that would have ultimately been a success. Um, So, so Kevin Rafferty, he had his hands full with these two projects at the same time as being handed over the reins to try and figure out what they were going to do with the Tower of Terror or what this new ride was going to be. He was also working on a ride um, that was going to go into Hollywood Studios as well, kind of in Sunset Boulevard, called the Creature's Choice Awards. This ride actually, it was more of a show than a ride. And the Creature's Choice Awards was basically a bunch of animatronic monsters. And there's no way on earth you're ever going to guess this, so I'm just going to tell you flat out. The host of this award show was going to be Eddie Frankenmurphy. And apparently they were going to have Eddie Murphy, who had already agreed to the project and was in on it, record the voice. He was going to be a Frankenstein's monster and he was going to be hosting this award show. And um, what's wild about this is the theater show would have the same, basically the same amount of animatronics that um, American Adventure had. So it would be this enormous scope of animatronics and award show monsters. There is not a lot of it, but there are some rough sketches of what Eddie Frankenmurphy would have looked like, what some of the monsters were going to look like. And all of this actually is in Kevin Rafferty's book, which I highly recommend you check out if you are interested in this kind of stuff at all. So as things go, he had already like three projects on his plate. And then this fourth one was thrust at him of trying to come up with this, you know, what is this new attraction going to be? There was talk about it being a drop ride. There was talk about it maybe being other things. They brought in a bunch of different kinds of collaborators. And um, interestingly, one of the first collaborators that they brought on to come up with sort of this scarier ride was Stephen King. Mm. The original idea for this ride when they brought in Stephen King you're going to love this. You are going to love this. Uh, there was going to basically be, it was going to be like a ride through kind of thing okay. through like Stephen King films and stuff, mm-hmm. which no I guess that Disney had Alien. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> they could have handled something like this. Was Alien still, I'm trying to think when the Alien ride, because well, that was only have... open in the 80s, right? Well, I, I'm not entirely sure the history of that, but I know the Stitch wasn't there because Stitch didn't come out in theaters until later. Sure, so, sure. So, and we're talking 1994. Well, yes, see. but this would have been earlier than 94 because this was all like planning phases. Right. So anyway, the, the oh, point so of- Oh, so Alien actually didn't open until 1995. Sure. So, and then closed in 2003. So this timeline pretty mm-hmm. much matches up with if they were like, yeah, we're making yeah. this Alien encounter thing. Well- Let's make something else scary. So Stephen King essentially was in on it, but there was a lot of things going on with um, licensing and, you know, collaborative control and stuff like that, where, you know, he had all these giant ideas, but none of them just felt like they were going to fit into the parks. Uh, The big idea that King had was that you were going to have a fake loading area. And as you were in your car and you were in the loading area, the fake loading area, Pennywise was going to literally explode out of the control room. 
And um, that just ended up getting scrapped. However, yep, that would have scared the bejeebies out of me. He ended up taking some of his ideas and bringing them over to Universal, where he collaborated on other rides. And um, the whole, like, you know, explosion out of the control room is something that does happen in Revenge of the Mummy in mm, yes. in Orlando. Yeah. It doesn't happen in Hollywood, but it, you do get that in Orlando. So um, that was scrapped, ultimately. Then they brought in uh, the famous, famous film director and creator, Mel Brooks. And what Mel wanted to do was he wanted to kind of sell them the idea of a theme park. Well, first of all, he had to be sold on the idea of a theme park ride. Mm -hmm. So Mel didn't want anything to do with that period. And um, the reason he was even brought in to begin with was because, you know, basically people told them like, yeah, films have some kind of a value to them, of course. But the average person will probably watch a film once, two, three times, and then it'll kind of be in their mind, but they won't think about it all the time. Whereas they were basically saying, we can get hundreds of thousands of eyeballs in front of your properties um, every single day for at least 10 to 20 years, <laughs> right? So that kind of perked up Mel's attention. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to create something called the Hotel Mel. And it was going to be kind of like a dark ride that um, took you through a backlot of what it was like to be on a movie set. And so um, this, of course, is where they sort of begun to glean the idea for a hotel. Uh, and what he wanted to do was have it go through like the young Frankenstein castle eventually with gags and stuff like that from his film. Um, but of course, that just sort of fell by the wayside as well. Again, licensing things, issues with just kind of making it happen and trying to figure out like what they wanted to do and how it was going to best serve the guest. They were also going to, at the end of Sunset Boulevard or somewhere in MGM, have the young Frankenstein castle, sort of with a forced perspective off in the distance, which again, I, I just, that film is very good. It's very adult. And I don't know how it would have fit, you know. Right. It would into... not have fit into the Disney vibe, There's even a... though Hollywood Studios, formerly known as MGM, mm -hmm. does and did have some elements that have had to become synonymous with Disney. Mm -hmm. Like Tower of Terror itself right. wasn't synonymous with Disney until, yeah. you know, the, it became this huge icon in that park. And then Disney ended up making the movie, The Tower of Terror. And so there were other things that sort of made it feel like Disney. Same with Haunted Mansion. Like it wasn't already a thing. And then they made Haunted Mansion a big Disney thing. They made the movie and all of those aspects so that's sort of what happened right. with tower of terror as well yeah exactly and the other thing too is there's a lot of like um to put it bluntly sexual jokes in innuendos in young frankenstein mm -hmm. and so some of the humor would be lost on the kids and it would probably be very limiting to them sure. as far as their audience right so basically you've got a multitude of failed ideas a ton of things that just aren't happening including roger rabbit's hollywood and Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. Like all of these things are just kind of falling to pieces. But the idea of the hotel really sticks with them. Um, and so they're thinking, okay, what can we do to try to get this hotel ride to actually be something? Like, what is it going to do? You know, what's it gonna be? One of the very first ideas that was floated was that um, they liked the idea of the elevator. That was like a big thing that they wanted to do. And so they were trying to figure out, like, you know, what's going to be the plan with this? Um, and how are we going to kind of 
have this falling elevator, you know, act up and be weird. Like, cause, cause you don't go just to a hotel and the elevator falls. That just doesn't happen. Sure. So they were thinking there has to be something kind of paranormal that's going to cause this to be a total catastrophe. And one of the first things that they pitched to Eisner was to kind of pull something from like a Vincent Price murder mystery and that there was going to be a, a murder in the hotel pool and the bad like omens and spirits from that mur murder caused the hotel to you know act yeah. up and to become kind of paranormal and eisner hated it he's like i don't want murder to be a part of the ride it sure. just doesn't feel right yep. um and they were you know bouncing around all these ideas and finally as they were as they were talking about it they kind of came up with the idea of you know the Twilight Zone is a very popular TV show. There's a lot of kind of meat on that bone that we can pull from. Let's try to figure out something with that that'll work. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, they were able to move forward with that idea because uh, in the 90s, the Twilight Zone was becoming less relevant than it had been in the past. Let's just say that, sure. right? And Paramount is the owner and producer of the series, and the rights were cheap, and they were excited to sell their rights to Disney to have their IP be recognized for decades to come. Yeah. Um, certainly, the I think that the popularity of the ride was going to be very understated, you know, because I do think in some ways it was a gamble. Mm -hmm. uh, so... With this ride, um, they had to come up with, you know, first of all, the mechanics of what it was going to do. The first thing that the first thing that was that was sort of um, that was kind of pushed out there was that Eisner wanted it to be a real hotel. And while in the Imagineer, not the Imagineering, but behind the attraction miniseries on Disney Plus, they talk about how, well, you know, I mean, hotels are kind of more for sleeping and quiet and it wouldn't really match. Um, yes, that was part of it. But the other thing was that, you know, they, they were planning at the time of having like this separate area for the hotel, but the elevator ride would actually drop guests off directly in the lobby. So as you're checking into the hotel, literally to stay there, um, you hear screaming and people like hitting the floor and then the doors opening and everyone getting off the ride, which would have been really fascinating, I think. Um, but there was a lot of issues with capacity and ride mechanisms and like how the heck they were even going to make that happen to begin with. Right. Because thinking through logistics of like, OK, then there has to be admission into the park from this door. Right. And it's possible Which because they, they, they do that with DCA, Grand California. Right. You know. But then there'd have to be like, you know, basically the equivalent of security at those doors. And then, you know, the people on the attraction they'd have to make two separate lines because the people that are getting off that don't have to go back through security to get back in the park. So it just is, it gets a little murky when you put an attraction on the outskirts unless the hotel is legitimately within the realm of the park and you'd have to check into your park or into your hotel by going into the park. Right, right. And and the, the funny thing too is that like Eisner was actually... um he was not a stranger to quirky, weird hotel ideas. One of the things he really wanted to do kind of early on in his career, too, was in um, on in, in, in Riverside Drive in Burbank, one of the things he wanted to do was make a Mickey Mouse hotel. 
and um, people thought, like, his team thought that it was going to be, like, a hotel named Mickey Mouse. But what Eisner wanted to do was create an actual Mickey Mouse-shaped hotel, like, shaped hotel. Oh. So you could, like, live in his ears or his elbows or, you know, other places. Weird. Like, his feet. Um, and <laughs> that ended up completely falling apart. So we had, like, all of these harebrained ideas of, of you know, what exactly he wanted to do with hotels. And um, uh, here's a quick fun jab. Um, none of his ideas were crazier than charging $5,000 for two nights at a Star Wars hotel. Zing! There it is. Okay. <laughs> so... The ride mechanism. Obviously, this ride was going to be a free-falling style ride. So what Disney Imagineers did was they went to Connecticut where the Otis Elevator Company resides. And they basically wanted help planning out the logistics of how are we going to do this. And so they had asked the team over at Otis that they wanted them to basically take them down as far as they could possibly go. And Otis was like, you're asking us to do the exact opposite of everything that we're... That's like asking an airplane to like fall out of the sky. Like, this is not what we do. And so um, Otis was like, okay, let's see how it goes. So a handful of Imagineers, some technicians, um, elevator technicians got in. They turned off the governor and just let it go as fast as it possibly could. And they got off and they were like this needs to go faster. This is just not fast enough. We stood there normal. It was no big deal. So for those of you who may kind of know a little bit of the background of this ride, Disney essentially innovated and pioneered defying gravity in the hotel. So the way that it works is the ride system basically, you know, it, it, it combines, you know, traditional dark ride elements with a drop tower um, and it, it pulls you down through like pulleys. So this is not advisable, but I've heard that if you have a penny in your hand and you ride the ride, you the penny will float out of your hand because you're going faster than gravity itself. Don't do that. because Well, I, that's why people leave their seats. Exactly. Like, correct. Even with your lap belt, whatever it is. Right. I, I've never ridden the ride. Yeah, I don't know if it's get a on strap it. or, a, or it's a, a bar. It's a little strap. It's, yeah. a, it's just a seatbelt. So belt. even with your seatbelt on, like mm-hmm. your hair goes up your butt leaves the oh, seat. Yeah, so that's that shows you right there that it's right. anti-gravity. So um yeah, I mean it was it was a it was a technical marvel for what Disney was trying to accomplish. I mean, right writers are basically taken through a series of narrative scenes before taking their final drop. There is, you know, a whole lot going on in this ride to um to kind of pull off what they wanted to to actually do. What I find really interesting about it, however, is the so after this ride kind of came out and it, it was a huge hit and success with fans, um, it had to quickly be translated over to Disneyland, uh, Tokyo Disney, or you know, and then and then over to Disneyland Paris. The thing about the ride that's lacking in all the other parks is that, and this like shook me to my core when I first rode Tower of Terror in Hollywood Studios, there is no fifth dimension anywhere but in Orlando. So the part of the ride when you're brought up, you see the story, and you go up again, and then you basically go into the Twilight Zone, and you 
are on what was actually the first trackless ride system where you go through, mm-hmm. um, that's only in Orlando. Right. And so... Um, They're the only ones with the space to do it. Well, yes. To start. Yes, and there was actually a lot more downtime because the trackless ride system, especially in a, if... You know, we always kind of thought, oh, yeah, the, the Winnie the Pooh ride and I think Tokyo or um, I think that's where it is. But, you know, Ratatouille and Galaxy's Edge and all these things are like the first big trackless ride systems. Well, like those are the first ones that take you on a bigger sort of journey at higher speeds. But it definitely wasn't the very first, you know, iteration of this traction. Uh, to go back a little bit in history. Um, uh, so Tony Baxter wanted to do the... Uh, geyser mountain that was going to be going kind of where galaxy's edges now is like an expansion of Frontierland and disneyland they were planning it out um the idea of this ride was that you would enter through a reimagined rainbow cavern um it was kind of like a tribute to the classic mine train through nature's wonderland and um before the geyser shot uh you know shot your ride vehicle up the shaft it was like cleverly disguised um as like, you know, the ride system was in a natural environment without a lot of technology. So it was like supposed to be a real surprise. So they were spearheading this idea. But the success of Tower of Terror had people in California basically saying, why don't we have that? And so they ended up through um, Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood Boulevard or whatever it's called in DCA. They ended up throwing it together there. And so because of that, they had less time, less resources and they just had to put something together quick. So they sacrificed the fifth element in order to make the ride work. And they were able to do two things. First of all, it prevented a lot of downtime on the ride. So people, you know, were, were they were the, the, it's a lot faster to get on that one than it is in Orlando. And also they were at, able to, through the 13 stories, add in more uh, ride vehicles. So I think there's like Correct. four instead of three. Yeah. Okay. Um, What's interesting, though, is this is essentially the exact same thing that happened with Pirates of the Caribbean and Walt Disney World. So um, Walt Disney World was working on a, a huge expansion that was going to be coming a handful of years after Magic Kingdom opened called the Western River Expedition. And it was going to be very pirates based, but kind of more of like the West, because, you know, when people so at the time in the 70s, people in Orlando weren't as familiar with like the wild web. They didn't have as much like hands-on experience with like the Wild West, sure. whereas people in California didn't really have any hands-on experience unless you traveled a lot, especially in the 50s, with like the Bayou kind of pirates thing. Right. So Pirates of the Caribbean was so popular in California that when Disney World opened, fans were like, or guests were like, what, what the heck? Why don't we have this ride? Yeah. So that's why Pirates of the Caribbean and Magic Kingdom is shorter, mm-hmm. less interesting, fewer drops because they didn't have they didn't plan the park around building that ride to begin with right similarly tower of terror in california is not as robust and exciting i mean it's still exciting but it's a lot different because you don't have that fifth you know fifth element happening yeah so the same thing of course with the ride in 2006 so in 2004 10 years later literally it opened up in dca 2006, it was brought to Tokyo, and then in 2007, it was brought to Paris. The Tokyo version is a different kind of story about like a museum hotel owner who, you know, basically stole an artifact, and that's how that all happened because there was no 
the Twilight Zone just wasn't really a part of Japanese culture and they didn't really know it. Right. Uh, and that's where they pulled in Joe Rohde and Joe Rohde was the face of right. the main character. He's there's hundreds of him all over the building. Yep. Um, really funny bit about that in the behind the attraction. Yes episodes um and then paris wanted to have the original tower of terror so they basically replicated it but disneyland uh well yeah, dca tokyo and paris all have the same mechanism mm -hmm. fifth element uh, the 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 fifth sort of dimension dimen i keep saying fifth element it's okay you know i know what you meant i know so the uh <laughs> the uh, fifth dimension is brought in only in orlando so again like when i wrote it i actually was trying to figure out is this normal like did i forget how the dca one worked or is this new it was really an exciting experience for me so boy there's a that's a lot yeah but we haven't even like got to the story yet i know you know i know this episode is brought to you by deep cut deep cut are makers and purveyors of handcrafted extremely high quality record storage and displays shelving slip mats coasters and so much more we love these guys. They're based out of Minnesota, and they've been sponsoring the show for some time now, but we've actually had Deep Cut in our home for years. One of the first things that we got from them were actually our uh, flip record display shelves and their floating U-shelves that we just absolutely love. Uh, their U-shelves are beautiful. We have the walnut, uh, the walnut ones that are actually in our bedroom and hold some plants, some photo frames, uh, some books, things like that. And also we have their flip record display shelves in our sitting room. Uh, where our record player is, and we have all of our favorite albums um, easily accessible and, and ready to see at any given time. Um, I, I can't really say enough about how much we, we really love Deep Cut. Um, they're such a great company. Their philosophy is quality and, handcraftsman, uh, and handcrafted products first. And uh, it's, it's just one of those places where when you get your package, when you get your stuff from Deep Cut, you, you can just tell immediately when you pull it out. Like You can smell... Um, you can smell the wood. You can feel like the quality of it as you are, um, as you're kind of uh, pulling everything out and taking a look at your new products. It's it's unbelievable, and frankly, it's it's unrivaled. Um, we have as the Parks Academy a very special promo code. You can use the code TPA10 at checkout, and you will get ten percent off your first order at Deep Cut. Listen, guys, I I, I really got to tell you, um, you can go ahead and apply this to anything. Um, from their brand new tabletop uh, record stand, which I highly recommend. Uh, their wall cubes, like I said, their, uh, their flip record display shelves, their amazing turntable coasters. And um, also I love, I, I, I keep saying this, but I love their uh, floating new shelves. I'm such an advocate and, a, uh, and, and someone who um, just loves these products and will, will, will tell it to everyone. I'm not saying this because they sponsor the show. I mean this. Um, we actually got their coasters not that long ago. And one of my favorite things about it is uh, that there's a detail in the middle of the record that says, listen to music the hard way. Um, again, I just, you know, their, their passion for quality and aesthetics and, and, and bringing forward a really great product is, is undeniable. So again, if you go to their website and you type in TPA10, you are going to get 10% off your first order. Thank you again so much to Deep Cut for sponsoring the show and being a part of the Parks Academy. And now... Back to the show. So the story is um, really just as big of a part as anything um, when it comes to Disney experiences. 
I told you, you know, kind of originally they wanted to do some kind of a Vincent Price, like murder in the hotel pool thing. And that was scrapped. And so um, we get over, we get over to the Twilight Zone. Perfect idea for this ride. And um, the ride story is basically fictitiously based off of something called the, the, what they call the lost episode, which is what um, the DJ McHale film that was released, I think in 97 was based on with, um, you know, with uh, Kirsten Dunst and um, uh, who else was in that movie? Steve Gutenberg. Kirsten Dunst is the only one that yeah. I remember. So Kirsten Dunst and, and Steve Gutenberg were in that film. Okay. And um, basically, you know, they made that film in response to the ride. Uh, but Rod Sterling's introduction, which is what I tried to pull off at the beginning of this episode, is from a episode um, of the Twilight Zone called It's a Good Life. And um, this episode is about a, uh, a boy... Um, who's named Anthony Fremont. He's like a six-year-old boy with like telekinesis and he uh, kills people and makes animals disappear and turns people into Jack in the Box. It's a very unsettling, weird episode. Uh, But anyway, Rod Sterling's introduction is from that where he says, you know, this story is, um, you know, different than anything you've, a little bit different than what we've done before or whatever he says. Um, And in the episode, he's actually in front of a US map. And so obviously... Since uh, Sterling died in 1975, well before, you know, this ride even came to be, uh, Imagineers had to green screen him out of the introduction scene in front of the U.S. map and put him in front of the elevator. And the introduction is quite literally identical up until when he says, you know, behind me, you will see a map of the United States. Yeah. But then in the ride, he says, behind me, you will see, you know, elevator doors or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, they were able to get a, a guy named Mark Silverman who took the rest of the dialogue and then created it because he had like this insane um, ability to replicate Rod Sterling's voice like verbatim. Wow. So uh, that was, um, I think that was pretty cool. And, and And again, it's a good life, that movie. Or that that episode is is partly what brought on you know the inspiration for the introduction. Yeah. Um, the introduction was also interestingly enough directed by Joe Dante. So he did like the pre-show ride video that you see in the room, and he was the director uh, not only of the original Twilight Zone movie, not the Tower of Terror movie, but the Twilight Zone film. Sure. He also directed films like Gremlins uh, one and two, Inner Space, The Burbs, um, stuff like that. Yeah. So. In the film, um, the Tower of Terror identifies five victims um, who are in the elevator and then the lightning hits the building, causes this bit like electromagnetic disruption. I don't really know what caused them to disappear, but Mm. lightning and magic, I guess. Do you remember the movie? You've only seen it one time and it was with me, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I do, but I don't. Well, the whole time you're trying to figure out like who's responsible for all. Wasn't it because they were like all bad people? It was because the, old, it was like basically jealousy, of the little girl, right? So wasn't it the, I forget like her, her caretaker? Is I have she the, the nanny or something. So you had Sally Shine, right? Was the child star? Uh, her nanny was Emmeline Partridge. There was uh, Gilbert London. Um, a, and his 
starlet lover, Carolyn Crossan, and finally a bellhop named Dewey Todd. Those were the five victims. And the lady, the lover lady, isn't she from 17 again, the principal? May, I don't know. I think I think that's her. Um, so while the film is generally considered non-canonical, uh, the names actually are used by both the uh, fans and by Disney itself within the parks. So um, the people in the movie are the people in the ride. I, I, I feel like, you know, part of it had to do, too, with some of them are just all terrible in their own way. But I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know, like, what the little girl could have done besides just have, like, a... Because she was inspired by Shirley Temple, who supposedly had a very difficult childhood. And, I mean, child actors, I can't imagine, like... Yeah, it, it like... The, the film Judy talks about like Judy Garland's childhood and all these like crazy, you know, terrible things that happened to kids, especially in the old days in films um, before there was like actually laws to protect children in movies and their rights and finances and stuff like that. It was not the nanny. It makes you think it's the nanny the whole time because she thinks her nanny cursed her, but it was her sister. Okay. I don't. It's been a while. Yeah. I, I so. watched it with you a couple years ago because you had never mm -hmm. seen it. But that's why I was misremembering is because they think that it's the nanny, but it's actually the sister who it was her birthday and everybody forgot about her birthday because they were making such a big deal about her sister yeah. and yada, yada, yada. So she cursed it. She cursed it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. Okay. So um, uh, Sally Shine's actress, uh, Lindsay Ridgway, she portrayed both the girl in the um introduction like pre-show directed by joe dante and she also was in the film tower of terror itself um, like i said she was visibly based on you know child actress shirley temple who you know was born in 1928 and in the pre-show video she's actually holding a plush mickey mouse which i think is kind of oh kind of a fun little thing you know um and so yeah i mean you know they there's what's interesting to me about it is usually I feel like there's some kind of a lesson to be learned. But in this ride, I don't really think there's a lesson. It's just like, you know, maybe don't check in to old abandoned hotels would, you know, be the only thing I could possibly think of. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, like don't wander in when there's cobwebs all over the place. Yeah. And that's kind of like the warning that they give on several of the pre-shows, right? It's like, don't, don't come here. Yeah. The one in Paris. She says, like, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. Yeah, like, yeah, Like, wagging yeah. her little Shirley yeah. Temple finger. Right. It's like Paris and... It's Paris. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So... Here's a quick fun side story. Hit me with it. The girl, I knew I remembered her, mm -hmm. who plays Sally in the movie... Yeah. ...is the replacement Morgan on Boy Meets World. There you go. So... Cool. Season three-ish, when Morgan randomly becomes a new actress... That's what she's from. I hope she had a good upbringing. I hope so. Because, like, she's a child star, too. Yeah. I was recently, um, I just finished up Succession because it, it literally just ended, like, last week on HBO. And Kieran Culkin, who, like, is incredible. Like, I think he, I, if he doesn't win an Emmy this year, I will just be very disappointed. Uh, he actually, in an interview, I think it might have been with Insider or someone, he was talking about how he like was so disinterested in acting because of the way Macaulay Culkin, his brother was, was, was treated. And, you know, even now, like as an actor, he just kind of sees through like all of the negativity of Hollywood and being in the limelight and how people can like treat you poorly and take advantage of you and stuff like that. So, um, 
that definitely took a sad little turn because, you know, we're just talking about a ride, but also, you know, take care of kids when they're in films, I guess. You know, stars, protect them. We're taking, it's official on the Parks Academy. We want to make sure child actors are treated properly, that their money is safe and that they are safe. There you go. Bold, brave stance on the show, (laughs) you know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that, that, so you've, you've never, you've never ridden it. You've never ridden Mission Breakout. Okay. I did. Which opened in 2017. I did the queue of Mission Breakout. Yeah. As far as I could go. You've only gone as far as the elevator on everything and then you bail. Correct. And the Tower of Terror, same thing. Mm -hmm. And then you get. To the point where you say, I'm not writing this. Take me downstairs. And they get you in an elevator and, and you're like, wait a minute. one of the people <laughs> in their costumes takes you on an elevator. And I looked at him and I said, you promise me this is a regular elevator? And, you know, they stay in character and whatnot. But I was like, J- just please confirm that you're right, being serious. Right. And that you can stay in character, but also please just don't uh, be sassy with me and tell me that you're taking me down. Not in drop fashion. I'm going to get you on the ride. I think next time we go, I'm going to get you on that ride. We'll see. It's a lot of fun, and I think that you would enjoy it. I think once our kids are old enough, if they want to do it, then I'll I'll be brave. They'll like shame mom. I'll be brave. I um I don't recall whether or not I wrote it by my uh, for the first time when um when I was uh when I went to Disney in two thousand. Oh, you know what? It wasn't open when I went to Disney for the first time. Correct. It was two thousand two. Yep. So I didn't have to be afraid of it. Yep, you do not. Well, speaking of being afraid of the ride. Uh, one of the big differences between the MGM Hollywood Studios version and the California Adventure version was that uh, all of them have a little bit of a different exterior look. And so the one in, in Hollywood Studios, when you're walking down uh, when you're walking down Sunset Boulevard, you like see it. It's right there. And so the tower is the very first thing you see, and then like the ride is behind it. Yes. Right? Yep. Whereas in, in California Adventure, it's like the entrance to the hotel. There's like these lush gardens. Now, of course, it's something else. But it was like these lush gardens and this like big entrance. And then the tower was behind it. Correct. So it's like it it's was backwards. almost like this big looming kind of presence in Hollywood Studios. And so as you walk up to it, you're like, oh, that's really tall. And mm-hmm. that's like really big and scary. And there's 13 floors of dropping. Right. You know? So... um. That's an interesting difference, and it always kind of felt weird to me in DCA because it was just, like, there. Right. Although I guess it fit eventually, but it, it never it, did. it never had the legs to where it became the park's icon. Sure. Which I, I, have, to, I have to admit, I always kind of found it a little strange that, that Tower of Terror is the icon for, for Hollywood, Hollywood Studios. Studios. Yeah. I always kind of felt like it should have been Grauman's Chinese Theater. Mm-hmm. And then they had at one point the big Mickey hat, right? So like the, the Mickey hat was, was for a while. Was, yeah. It was, yeah. Which I still have beef that that's gone. That was one thing I really wanted to see when I went to Disney World for the first time. It's such time. a bummer to not and have it. I went there and I was like, oh, they, I guess. Well, they thought, remember we talked about this in a previous episode, there was some commentary about how it detracted from the Grauman's Chinese Theater and yeah yeah and then they ended up doing you know light shows and nighttime spectaculars on the Chinese Theater so that's Mm -hmm. kind of nice but I yeah the 
association of Mickey's Sorcerer's Hat with Hollywood Studios is so great because yeah. that's where Fantasmic is. Right. And so that was such a staple of that park that people right. went and then everybody went to Fantasmic to end their exactly. Hollywood Studios day. Exactly. Like that was the big culminating thing. Well, and it just is such a bummer that that yeah. got taken out of it because then it made Fantasmic feel like such a less special thing that Hollywood Studios was doing. It made it feel like, okay, well, you know, that's just another show they have here. I didn't even know that Fantasmic was there until later because it right. just didn't make sense. Like, you know, it, right. it was in it, it's, it's in Disneyland and I, I just didn't really associate it with being um, there. But but the thing that's, that's strange to me is that, and I guess that DCA is kind of the same way, but you've got almost every park, you know, four out of the six parks, the icon is like right in the middle. You walk in and like there it is, right down Main Street. You know, you you get to like Discovery Island and um and uh and and Animal Kingdom and it's like right there at the Tree of Life, same with the spaceship Earth. But you have to like go into the park and then take a right to go see Tower of Terror. And even I mean you can still see it, obviously, because it's big and it, it like complements the Florida sky. And if you're sure. at Epcot, you can like see it through Morocco, which I think is really right. cool. It matches the Morocco yeah. skyline, yep. Which is amazing. But it's I don't know, I feel like Grauman's is almost like should be more of the icon, but it's not. So I think I, the only reason it's not is because of its size. Yeah. I, I think I think you're it's purely right. the size of the Tower yeah. of Terror that it just you can see it from everywhere. And when you think about Walt Disney World. Spaceship Earth, mm -hmm. Tree of Life, mm -hmm. Cinderella's Castle, all towering over everything else. Yep. Then, what is towering over everything else in Hollywood Studios? It's Tower mm -hmm. of Terror. That's when we it. made uh when we when I made t shirts for us, um I by the way, you can buy t shirts online and you can get twenty percent off. Check our Instagram for the code. Um, like, you know, self promotion. I uh I actually set it up to where we had, you know, pretty much all the obvious icons. And for Disneyland, I made it be Matterhorn because that is pretty iconic, even though Sleeping Beauty's Castle is the big one. But for Hollywood Studios, I like straight up made it um, the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, why you know? not? Because, yeah, why I just not? figured whatever. Yep. Um, I'm going to wrap up our talk about Tower of Terror with some Easter eggs that I think that you might enjoy. Um, so there is in the lobby a whole lot to look at and if you're familiar at all with the twilight zone tv show um there's some things that you may recognize from this and even if you're not familiar with the twilight zone tv show uh, there's actually a lot of things parodied from it in other movies you know in other television shows and stuff like that that's that's very familiar um in the lobby there's a poster that advertises um anthony fremont who i mean i mentioned was a six-year-old boy who had like the telekinesis um, and it's actually his orchestra performing in the hotel's tip-top club. Um, Fremont was the main antagonist in the episode, It's a Good Life, where he was a very disturbed child with, with powers of a god, and he infamously like hated music with lyrics in it, and he was very weird about music to where it had to be very specific, and like, you know, if anyone interrupted, he would like turn them into a jack-in-the-box and then like banish them to a cornfield. Uh... And so it's just kind of ironic that they have a poster for his orchestra there. Um, on the directory, there are missing letters that spell out Evil Tower, You're Doomed. Mm -hmm. So if you fill in the blanks of the missing letters, that's what it says. Yep. 
um, <clears throat> in the library, you'll take a look and find a pair of broken glasses sitting on top of a stack of books. And the glasses are a reference to um, a very famous episode called Time Enough at Last, where a guy like, you know, has all the time and eternity to like read every book he wants and his glasses break, <laughs> which is just poor fella. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of the other ones are if you see the Nick of um, the, the episode in the Nick of Time with William Shatner, there's a uh, fortune teller machine uh, that tormented Shatner and that's in there. Um, from the episode Caesar and Me, there is the ventriloquist dummy Caesar, who I think you would love. He's a very creepy looking I'm ventriloquist. I'm sure I would not. He's very cute. I hate dolls. We love him. We hate dolls. Uh, there's an abandoned Mahjong set, which isn't really as much of an homage to an episode as much as it is like saying this hotel frozen time and everyone who was in here playing Mahjong, for instance, is just gone now. So there's a game that's in the middle of it. Um, there is a 13 diamond AAA hotel plaque, which is, you know, funny because 13, uh-huh. you know, unlucky, yep. 13 floors, all that. And then finally, uh, there is a, a a very like dusty old trumpet from the episode Passage for Trumpet above some sheet music. And um, the sheet music that's underneath the trumpet is so random and so crazy. Are you ready for this? <laughs> you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. Um, so in 1932... There was a song composed by Irving Caesar called No Mickey Mouse, What Kind of Party Is This? Weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so those are the lyrics that are underneath the trumpet. And it is like, it's super weird and, and kind of random. Um, there are no recordings of it, apparently, but the lyrics are so weird. I'm going to read you a little bit of them. By the title, I can imagine. Should I should I try to like come up with a tune or just like read them? Nope, I would just read them like a poem. You don't want me to like try to sing it for you? Ahem. Uh, when Noah planned his famous arc, he knew just what to do. He searched until he found a park and walked off with the zoo. With lions, tigers, monkeys, donkeys, he sailed the ocean wide. And when he lined them up on the deck, t'was then some cuckoo cried. What? No, Mickey Mouse, what kind of party is this? Your lions roar, your tigers snore, I've heard them roar and snore before. I don't see why you make a fuss about the hippopotamus. Your dogs bow wow, your cats meow. I know that you can milk a cow, but Mickey makes me laugh and how, and I want Mickey now. So, where's the tricky mouse? <laughs> that slicky, wacky, wicky, blajvicky Mickey Mouse? Vote for Mickey Mouse, let's make him our next president. To Congress, he is sure to say, meow, meow, okay, okay. Ha, ha, yes, see, see, wee, wee. How dry I am, have have one on me. And then he'll cry, give me the facts, give me an axe, I'll cut your tax. He'll show us all what, what can be done when he's in Washington. So let's give the White House to Slicky, Wacky, Wicky, Blaschkevicky, Mickey Mouse. What in the world? <laughs> so it starts with Noah's Ark and then it ends with him like cutting taxes in Washington as our president. Nice. And I would vote for Mickey, I guess. What year did that come out? Uh, like what year was that written? 1932. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, you know, and of course, uh, of course, that was when FDR um, was president. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
What a weird little thing. Yeah, so I don't know why that sheet music is in the lobby, but it's there. And it has some of the weirdest, craziest lyrics. I guess because of the timeline of like it's supposed to be 1930s Hollywood, but and it also mentions Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I mean, I I guess. It kind of reminds me of like early 60s Beatles songs, if you know what I'm referencing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Octopuses and submarines and whatnot. Yeah. So... Yeah, the Tower of Terror is really crazy. Um, I think that there's a lot of fun with it. And one of the other things that I love so much is how it pulls from, you know, so many failed projects that are kind of like what ifs. You know, what if we had Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers or um, the Creature's Choice Awards with Eddie, Frank, and Murphy? I don't think any of those would have held up. Yeah, it probably would have been a lot like Superstar Limo and DCA where it was just like, what on earth? Right. But who knows? I, I would I would I know. We, love, we will never know. I would love to see the Creatures Choice Awards, especially if it had like dozens and dozens of animatronics. Right. Could have been cool. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Weird how many ideas were floated out there and just never I know, it's, came to it's, fruition. Uh, it's, it's something else. The, the final thing that I want to say really quickly so we can just wrap this episode up. Um, in, a, in, a, in a nice little package is you may be wondering, you know, this is all good and great. I don't want to go on Tower of Terror because I might fall to my death. Um, there's a YouTube channel called The Art of Engineering, and they basically go through like all of the show scenes and Pepper's ghost effects, um, you know, force perspective and all that kind of talking about the ride mechanics. But um, they, they do talk about the fail safes in the ride. And how, you know, there are brakes and then there are speed governors that kick into place if the brakes fail. And there's a governing system in the counterweights. And if both the cables snap, it would activate an emergency brake. Um, if everything failed all at once, which is like statistically near impossible, uh, the falling elevator would create a cushion of compressed air at the bottom of it that would help, you know, break the fall. And there's shock absorbers at the bottom. So essentially, like you, it would be it, like if you're mid-fall and it breaks, like you're just going to stop. Unless a jealous little sister or jealous older sister curses you. That's the only chance of dying on this ride. All right, everyone. Well, that is going to do it for <laughs> us. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us on this uh, super fun series. We are going to be jumping into our next couple of episodes are going to be Spaceship Earth and the Tree of Life. And we are going to save the castles for last. Um, we just want to say thanks again so much for listening to the show. You can find us online at theparksacademypod.com, on Instagram at theparksacademy. Uh, thank you again so much to Deep Cut uh, for sponsoring the show. You can get 10% off your first order of record accessories or record display shelves using the code TPA10 at checkout. We highly recommend you check these guys out and take advantage of that offer. Uh, remember to check us out uh, you know, online, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts. And until then, Start in Canada, start in Adventureland. <laughs>